Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ray spent a little bit of time watching me and said, this kid has no chance. Oh my God, Renee. Oh my God, Caitlin. You're in Singapore. What's up? I am in Singapore. I am overlooking the beautiful harbour here with the 600,000 shipping and hauling and cargo boats. It's uh, hot, humid, but thankfully we're playing the WTA finals here in Singapore indoors. Uh, It is freezing cold in New York. Don't hurry back. Winter has come for us all. Oh no. So you're telling me I need to make sure I have my tan set before I come back. Yeah, you're going to need your tan to last all through the winter because it is freezing (laughs) here. Oh God. Uh, So I'm very jealous you're in Singapore eating some noodles at night markets and watching some great tennis. What's going on down there? Watching some great tennis. I'll tell you what, if you live in this area of the world, this is the best tournament to come and watch all year long, whether it be the WTA finals, the ATP finals. You get to watch the best players in the world literally duking it out every single night. So uh, last night we had a... uh, Two straight set victories, which is not usual on the WTA finals. Usually you have three sets, you know, battles, um, and believe me, I'm sure they're to come. There's no question about that. But uh, Svitolina was a bit of a surprise uh, straight sets victory um, over um, Kvitova last night. And um, Kaya, uh, as I call her, Karolina Pliskova, had a really great two-set win over the defending champion in Caroline Wozniacki last night. So... Uh, I'm working with Caroline, as everybody knows. Um, so it was a good night for for Team Racket. Let's just put it that way. Team Racket. She was looking good in her Racket t-shirt uh, before. I'm pretty sure that had something to do with her victory. Yeah. And she won it on an ace. She's uh, the ace queen, after all. So it was really, really fun to watch her uh, get off to a good start there. Hopefully... Uh, you know, obviously she does really well this week. Yeah, that's the thing about the WTA Finals is that, you know, you can have a great first match and it's just like, oh, well, get over it because now you've got to play another great player in a day. So, you know, it's it's one of those uh, tournaments that you kind of have a great high and then you've got to get quickly back down to earth and get back to work because there's no guarantees. Um, you know, it depends on how people win. Is it straight sets? Do they win all their matches? You know, everybody could win one match or two matches. I mean, there's been people, I mean, Dominika Sibulkova won the, won the tournament here one year and only won one match in the round robin event. So, you know, everybody knows very clearly that uh, winning one match is no guarantee uh, of a semi-final berth. So we've got a lot of work to do. Well, one of the things that happened um, in addition to uh, Kaya winning was you got to sit down with one of the most successful coaches in the world, your good friend, 
Darren Cahill, who joins us for this week's episode. Tell me about that. I did. Uh, obviously, Darren was here with Simona Halep, who unfortunately had to pull out of the tournament due to, a, you know, this nagging back uh, problem that she's ha- ha- sustained in China. Um, so, you know, it's always a bummer to not have the world number one here. But Darren was here. They were here to get the, um, you know, the trophy for the world, NEU world number one. So the whole team was here, ready to go to play, but they couldn't. So he was off to back home to Australia last night. So I nabbed him yesterday uh, before he could get on that plane. As we know, our Racket magazine podcast listeners have really requested Darren through the last few months and and we got him and we've got some classic stories from a classic Aussie um, and uh, yeah I laughed throughout it all we were a little naughty with one another so uh, it's it's a lot of fun well when I was editing it today I had to stop it a few times and rewind it and play it for my wife Claire because I was uh, laughing out loud and she kept asking me what I was laughing at um, and there was copious moments so it really did not disappoint Obviously, the hilarious stories were a highlight, but also what like amazingly interesting stuff he gets into from working with Andre Agassi, his own career. Obviously, you guys sharing a, a lot of history there with the Australian Sports Institute. It was really great. What a fantastic, thoughtful guy he is with a really awesome sounding wife. Yeah, Vicky's the, you know, she's the rock, right? She's the one that's uh, got the sense of humor in the family, clearly, as we'll, we'll hear from this podcast. But um, yeah, you know, just it goes back and talks about the history of how he got into tennis, how he ended up in coaching, which was interesting in itself, um, you know, going from uh, playing to a little transitional period of what he did after that, and then obviously into such a great coaching role, on top of the fact that he's one of the best tennis analysts in the world, uh, clearly working many hours uh, with me at ESPN, and he's a great listener, he's my favorite commentator, so uh, yeah, he's just a great guy all around, really. It's a great interview, and before I get to it, the one thing I wanted to give you an update on is I finished the Lee Na book that I stole from your apartment, uh, My Life by Lee Na. What a great book. It is so fun, and she writes you a hilarious dedication in the front. To Stebsy, I hope you enjoy reading my book, Lee Na. What a great book. Uh, I hope you're, if you're there and you get a chance to grab her, I would love to have her on the show because I'm a huge Lee Na fan. More so now that I've read her book. Everyone should go out and read it. It's really, really thoughtful and interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, I tried to grab her when I was in Wuhan. um, But, you know, she's super busy with the tournament there. And then, you know, unfortunately, Kaya lost pretty early in the tournament. So we were out of there. Um, But, you know, inevitably, I will try and grab her at some stage for our pod um, in the future because she is a great listen. Her and Jian Chang, a.k.a. Dennis. All right, without further ado, listen up for our fantastic interview with Darren Cahill coming up right now. Well, here we are in Singapore. We're actually overlooking the port of uh, Singapore. It's beautiful. And I'm joined by my very good friend, fellow Aussie. It seems to be a bit of a theme that I keep getting these Aussies on here, but... Um, I'm here with Darren Cahill, coach of, of course, Simone Hallett, world number one, again this year. My good friend. Thanks for joining me. Killer. My pleasure. I'm a little bit nervous. Oh, God, please. No, I, you do make me nervous. You know oh, that. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. Well, let's not get into that reason. <laughs> All right. First question I want to ask you is, and I, I guess a lot of people want to know this, including me, huh? why the name Killer? I would love to be able to say that it's a really interesting story, but it's a bit of a boring story, actually. There was a, a guy called Mark Beers. You're a little bit too young to remember Mark. He was from Victoria, and I was a late developer. I reckon I was the smallest kid in my class at year 11, 16, going to St. Michael's in Adelaide. 
Uh, but I could play decent tennis. And Mark Beers was another tennis player from Victoria. And I walked in and he knew me. Um, our fathers played football, AFL football together. And actually Mark ended up playing for Collingwood, which my father coached him a few years later than that. But because I could play decent tennis and I was so small, he actually nicknamed me the Little Killer. So that stuck, Little Killer. And then about 18 months later, I think I grew about a foot. I went from about five foot two to six feet two. And Little got, little got dumped. And I became killer. So it's, did, a, it's a boring story. You didn't but become big killer? No, nah, just, just killer. The, the killer. The killer. The killer. <laughs> That's classic. Actually, that brings me to the point of um, why tennis? Because um, a lot of people, obviously, in the tennis world don't yeah. um, know that your father was a very, very good AFL footy player, yeah. Australian rules football, for those of you around the world. Of course, Australians know what I'm talking about. Um, but why tennis? Why not football? No, my, my father was a closet tennis player. He loved it. And the first thing he did when he made a bit of money was that he put a tennis court in the back of our house. And he was a lefty, a serve volleyer. And he used to make me sit up and watch all the Borg McEnroe finals at Wimbledon. It was the only time I could stay up late was to watch those matches. And we got hooked on those amazing matches those guys played. And he tried to play like McEnroe. And he'd take me out the back and beat me up. So we just ended up playing a lot of tennis. I played football as well until I was about 16. Decent. I'm not sure that I would have made it as a footballer because I'm pretty light-framed. Not with your knees. No, and I would have got banged around quite a bit. But I loved football. I remember my childhood sitting in my room at night just tossing a football up and down and trying to hit the ceiling and taking speckies over my brother's. In the house and, and Can going. You explain what a specky is. That's, so a, that's, a, that's a mark over a pack of players. Mm. Um, and then also getting the football and doing check sides, which is kicking the f- football sideways and trying to get it through a door down my passageway of the house. So football was what I did 23 hours of the day in my house, but I played a little bit of tennis as well. And it just worked out that I was a bit better at tennis than I was at football at about 16 or 17. And as you know, at 16 or 17, you have to make a decision. So mm. I chose tennis. So, okay, so you, you, ch- you choose tennis. Um, what, what was the next, like, sort of, you know, grade for you with, with tennis? I mean, uh, how did you know that you were an exceptional tennis player? You know, I caught a break. You remember Bob Carmichael? I do. Yeah, Nails passed Nails. away a number of years ago. But Nails was an avid AFL follower as well. He loved the Melbourne Football Club and he knew of my father. So he played a, paid a little more attention to me than he probably should have because of who I was. And he was one of the coaches at the Australian Institute of Sport. And Ray Ruffles was the head coach. And what they had to do is they picked the 10 best 17, 18-year-old males and also female players. And we'd all go to Canberra and live there and train there for a year. I was nowhere near the best 10. And Bob saw a little bit in me, which was, I guess, work ethic, desperation I was hungry to be you know out there on the practice court all the time and he sort of kept an eye on me as a young player and so he pitched for me to be included in that 10 players and Ray spent a bit of time and Ray will notice he'll tell this story uh, Ray spent a little bit of time watching me and said this kid has no chance no, he's not he's not coming this kid has no chance and Bob pleaded with him to allow me to come in to the institute I got the 10th spot and that wow. was my big break from wow. there. I would never have been a tennis player if it wasn't for that. Oh, God, yeah. I did not know that yeah. story. That's uh-huh. so great. Yeah. Well, it's funny how, um, you know, we're here sitting in Singapore, the two of us, and, you know, we're now coaching um, on the WTA Tour, and we're also working for ESPN, and we both went to the Australian Institute uh-huh. of Sport. Um, and Ray ended up being one of my coaches. Yeah. So it's kind of full circle moment, isn't it, really? How small the world is and how lucky 
small breaks like that, particularly. That's I, you I need never, them. I never heard that story. Yeah, so you need so those great. breaks. You need somebody to believe in you. Mm. And Bob Nails was my person that that sort of stood over me. And, and as it turned out, Bob became my coach for my entire career. I never had any other coach that Bob Carmichael. And most of my coaching philosophies come from what he taught me. Mm. Nails for yep. those of um, us in Australian tennis. Two reasons. Yeah, two reasons. One, he was a carpenter, and secondly, he was tough as nails. Yeah, oh, good. Um, yeah, good memories because he was—he's as we say in Australia, a great bloke. Um, so, all right, so you you uh, you work your ass off at mm-hmm. the Australian Institute of Sport. I know four hours a day on court, yep. two hours a day in the gym at least. You're going to school, you're trying to manage all that. Chasing girls. Tra- well, yeah, I wasn't chasing girls at that point. <laughs> I just come up at some stage. <laughs> no, come on. Everybody knows. Yeah. Anybody's listening to my podcast or knows anything about me on Google, it's not... That, but I, you know, anyway, we won't get into that. You had a bit of a thing for me, though, at one stage. Right? Well, I think not you really. me too. Not, no. yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you and I missed each other at the Institute. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that's yeah. probably a good thing. Yes, would have turned me earlier. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, all right. So, you go out into the big world of professional yep. tennis. Very different back then. Not as much money, obviously. You really have to... As an Aussie, how many months on the year of the year were you on the road? Yeah, my first trip overseas was with Barry Phillips Moore, in fact, and I went over there with a group of players. And my father was fortunate that he was doing pretty well, so uh, he was, he financed me away for my first trip. I played three satellites back then, and back in those days, a satellite consisted of five tournaments, whereas now it's five individual weeks for futures events. This was one tournament cut into five weeks, so I was away. 16 weeks, four months on the road. The very last tournament, I came through pre-qualies in the Austrian satellite, pre-qualies, qualies, and got into the main draw and earned my first ATP point. Mm. And with that, you get a ranking of about 800 back in those days, and that was it. So I got the ranking point. I got a ranking that allowed me to get into some qualifying matches back in Australia. And then you're on the road nonstop, and basically you stay away for as long as your finances allow it. And as soon as you run out of money, you get on a plane and come home. So it's a little bit different now. But it also gave you some toughness yeah. as well. And, and you couldn't take the easy way out. If you were having a bit of a struggle and and you're having a couple of bad weeks, you had to put your head down and just work harder because the option of jumping on a plane and coming home was not there. Well, especially going back to Australia. Yeah. Bloody expensive and, and long, long mm-hmm. hours. You know, two days to recover basically every time you went home. So do you remember the most memorable match for you, like in your career, where you were like, I've... Not I've made it because that's so wanky, but like <laughs> where you go, I, I think I think I'm a good player. I think I deserve to be out here. Yeah, no, I always had doubts, self doubts about myself as a player. Uh, even if I had a good win, I felt like ugh, I got it given to me. You know, I never was, could sit back and be that satisfied with a win because I never felt like I really belonged with the top players in the world. I was kind of the type of player that I could give them a tough battle if they had a bit of an off day. But if they were on, they would normally thump me. So over the course of my career, I got a few good wins over some of the, the top names. But normally I needed a little bit of help. So I was a tier or two down from that particular level. But at the, the first real breakthrough for me was coming through the qualities of the French Open. I think Jeez, I was on clay. Well young cl- I never lost three, three qualities in a row. Nine wow. matches in a row at qualifying hey. Paris. Now, those courts back there were super quick too, and they were bouncy. So my little crappy kick serve. Pat Cash once said I had the best worst serve in the world because it was this crappy kick serve that sort of moved around in the air and bounced up and no one could actually hit it. So on those fast courts, I was pretty hard to beat. Even Paris, when the sun is shining, they actually play really quick. Yeah, they do. So 
I had some decent results in Paris and came through qualies and I played Mark Dixon, who was ranked 50 in the world, another American, out on court three. You know court three very well. And we played 13-11 in the final fifth set. Oh my God. And I won. And yeah. and that was pure joy yeah. for me to get through that match and win my first match in a Grand Slam. So, And that also gave me belief that I could play five sets, I could play on different surfaces, and that I could play against somebody ranked so high back then because I think I was about four hundred in the world at that stage yeah. so that, that gave me belief and I think that was a big kickstart to my career and then you know uh, what was the reasoning of the re- you know retiring and how difficult is that because I think mm-hmm. every player really struggles with when to stop uh, 13 knee surgeries yeah. was mine so yeah. I had uh, bad knees from about 18 years of age because of the little killer story I told you about yeah. I grew so much in the space of 18 months that I had these little golf balls coming out of the bottom of my knees and once they went away my tracking of my kneecaps was going outward so I, I ended up using all the uh, anticular cartilage mm. uh, inside my kneecap and basically it was bone on bone by the time I was about 23 years of age so I retired or forced out of the game when I was 25 wow. so pretty young so so Okay, so what was next? Working in a bar back in Adelaide. I invested in a bar called Aces Bar and Bistro. Come on. Yeah, we had a nightclub called The Planet. Do you ever come to Adelaide and go to The Planet? I did go to The Planet. Wait, you opened it? We had a piece of that. Oh, shit, I helped you. Uh, I probably helped you Players Bar. We had Players Bar also, which was another nightclub with a couple of other people. Tim May, the cricketer, Chris McDermott, the footballer, and Greg Griffin, a lawyer back in Adelaide. So the four of us put together a few little investments. So I was walking, working behind the bar pouring beers, to oh be honest. God. Are you yeah. good at it? <laughs> I'm very good at pouring beers. Wow. I'm very good at giving away free beer. Oh, yeah. Especially to everybody I know. Yeah. yeah, especially if you're topping it off a little bit and having a sip <laughs> yourself. Wow, so you go into owning a bar, you yeah. work behind the bar, and then how the hell did you get into coaching then? Yeah, I had this little phone call one day from a lady, Sherilyn Hewitt, who called me up and said, hey, listen, I've got a son that we reckon plays pretty well. He's 12 years of age. Uh, is there any chance you could hit with him? And I, I'd hit with quite a few of the Adelaide kids and been out to a couple of squad trainings and tried to help as much as I can. And I was, okay, you know, my knees were not good enough to play professionally, but certainly you could play. The, I could play. I was yeah. fine. So I got a knock on the door. I said, absolutely, bring him over. I got a knock on the door. Sheridan was there. This kid has his hat backwards. He has the Nike clothes on, just like Agassi. Pretty much what you look like right now. Exactly. <laughs> He's got the racket bag with about eight rackets in the back. He looks at me and goes, hello. I said, g'day, Leighton. How's it going? I'm Darren. Nice to meet you. Yep, I know who you are. And I said, you want to go hit some tennis balls? He said, yep, let's go. This is 12 years of age. We go out to the back. We play three sets, I reckon. And I reckon I thump him pretty easily. Love and one in the first couple of sets. But by the third set, <laughs> getting a little bit tired. He's getting fired up. He doesn't want to stop. He's giving me the fist pumps, the come-ons at 12 years of age. I'm looking around at my now wife, Victoria, going, is this kid serious? And by the end of it, he nearly ran me off my feet. And this is at 12 years of age. Wow. And I was still playing pretty good tennis. Yeah. So I came in after that practice session. We played for a couple of hours. And Victoria said to me, what do you think? Because she'd seen me hit with a bunch of other kids as well. Mm. I went, oh my God, this kid is special. Wow. This kid has got something I haven't seen before. 
he was also getting coached by Peter Smith, mm-hmm. another coach in South Australia, who'd done an amazing job yeah. with his technique. But he didn't really know how to play. Yeah. Great at technique, didn't know where to put the ball and how to utilise his game. So that sort of became my role, was to teach the kid how to play. I didn't worry so much about his technique. It was just where to put the ball. Yeah, how to from play what, point. What, what positions in the court and how to stay alive. Yeah. And he did it great. He was like a sponge. So you just stayed with him yep. permanently after that? Yeah, so we were together... Every time we was back in Adelaide, he would come over as much as possible. We worked together for about four or five years. He did a big breakthrough at the South Australian Open, won that tournament as a 16-year-old. He actually went away for the first year on tour, a little bit with Bob Carmichael, in yeah, fact, but a couple of other coach coaches. Nails. Yeah, Nails, a couple of other coaches. I think his dad was traveling with him quite a bit. Didn't work out great. And so when he was about 18, just outside the top 100, they called me up. They asked me to go on the road before that. But they said, listen, can you take Were him Were you still on behind the bar at this point? Yeah, I would have been. Yeah, I would have been doing a little bit of bar work, um, running around with this, that and the other. I was, yeah, for sure, still based in South Australia, doing a little bit of commentary work as well. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me to go full time with him and take him on the road. And we did. We went to WA, played the Challenger over there. He broke through, won that tournament, the Challenger. And then he went from 100 to 22 in the first year. The second year, he went to six. And the third year on the road, he went to one. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah, he's a great player, though. Talk about... Yeah, but, you know, it's um, it also is really important, I think, for people to understand that you might have a great talent and they have to be... Obviously, have the desire and all, yeah. all of that. But, but it is important to have the right people around yeah, you. For sure. To, yeah. uh, particularly because, you know, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot for yeah. a young kids. So yeah. that's a... Great story of Australians helping one another as well, you know. So you go from coaching Leighton, then you stop working with Leighton. How did you... The next coaching for you was Andre? Mm-hmm. Jesus, it's not bad. <laughs> so how did that come about? Uh, I have a good story about that, actually. It Great, was, that's why we're here. Yeah, 2002, and I'm at the Aussie Open, and because I didn't know what I was doing, I was working for Channel 7. You do a little bit of work for Channel 7, or yep. have done. Yep. And I had an agent come up to me, a mitt, Neil come up to me, he works with Murat Safin, and says, I have a player I want you to work with. Um, I'm talking him, he doesn't have a coach, I'm talking him into appointing you as the coach. Can you come and have breakfast with me? I went and had breakfast with him, he went through the whole Murat story. Murat's a little bit complicated as well. He'd already won the, the US Open. Great player, six foot five. I come back from that meeting, and I'm married now, my wife's there, Victoria. And we have a little baby as well about Benjamin, who's at that stage about nine months old. Now he's taller than you. Yeah, taller than I am. And she goes, where have you been? And I said, I've actually been in a meeting at a possible coaching job. And she goes, who is it? And I said, "Uh, it's Marat Safin. She's like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. You've got to take that job. Oh my God, that guy is so, so hot. Good looking. Oh, he's so hot. You know, me and the girls, we've actually got tickets. We've been watching all of his matches here. I said, what? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Where'd you get the tickets from? No, no, we go out and buy his tickets. And there's like six of us, and we go to all of his matches. That guy is smoking hot. He's the big, sexy Russian. You've got to take that job. You know, don't I, worry, love the, I love kill that it. Vic is yeah. all she's concerned oh, about yeah. is how good looking are the people you're going to work with. Okay, I'm going to give you some advice here. Don't worry about the money. This would be really good for you moving forward. You need to take this job. So, what do they offer you? Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, right, let's, yeah, let's take that job. Oh, and I'm, I'm looking at her going, Are you serious? And she was dead serious. Yeah, of course. So. He goes on and does that tournament. He gets to the final and he loses to Thomas Johansson in the final. Every day she's coming up to me and she's saying, how's it going? Yeah, how's it going? Everything going? What can I do? Can I do anything? She's super nice to me. (laughs) The whole tournament. 
And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, this is going to be interesting. And we get to the final. I'm not at the final. I'm sitting down watching it on TV. And can you remember that yeah, tournament? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. so he's in the yeah. final and yeah. he doesn't have a coach. He doesn't have an entourage. He has three girls. Yeah, in the in the, yeah. in the the player box sitting there. And these three girls, I promise you, they look like working girls. They're yeah. not questionable. They look like working girls. They've got things hanging out of places Barely that should sure not be were. hanging out of places. And I'm sitting there and Victoria's smirking at the television every time they flash onto these girls, which is pretty much after every point. And I look at her and I say, baby, you really want to be part of that? Look look at those three girls. They look like three working girls. Do you really want me around those three girls? Well, there you go. You really want that to happen? She goes, baby, you call me number four. (laughs) That was exactly what she said. And I, I, This is why I love you. And I'm looking, I'm laughing now. And now I'm kind of thinking... I got to take the job anyway, right? Just to see where all this goes, right? Because us Aussies are a little bit sick anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. all right. So, about four or five days later, I get a call and Victoria picks up the phone in my house and tell me it's not Marat. No, it's Andre. Andre calls oh. up and she goes, "Hello, Victoria speaking." And yeah, you know, hey, it's Andre here, and we know Andre a little bit, yeah. not a lot. And he just had a, a kid, Jaden, Jaden Agassi, about three months old, and actually about. Six months before that, I gave him a book called The Contented Little Baby Book, which is basically a, a Bible for yeah. people that travel and try to get the kids on a schedule. Mm-hmm. So I thought he was calling me about the book. Yeah, thanks yeah, for the book. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. So I get on the phone, and Victoria hands it to me. And as she's handing it to me, she's giving me the waving finger, basically, uh-uh, uh <laughs> we're not doing this. So I take the phone call, and Andre goes, hey, how's it going? And I said, hey, how's that book? And he goes, what book? And I said, the book I gave you at the Sydney tournament yeah. six months ago, oh, no, I, I left that in Sydney. No, I'm not <laughs> calling about the book. I'm calling you to see whether or not you'd like to coach me because Brad and I have had a, Brad Gilbert and I have had a great eight years together, And but it's time for a change for both of us. And so I would love for you to think about coming over and coaching. So we have a five-minute conversation. I hang up the phone. I tell him my problem that I've got that I've not agreed to, but a long way down the path with Marat. I hang up the phone and Victoria goes, this ain't going to happen, killer. We are not doing this. We have a 22-year-old, six-foot-five, hot, sexy Russian in Marat Safin. And we have, how old's Andre? Like, like 48, 49 years old. He's bald. He walks like a duck. We're not taking that. We're, we're going for the Russian guy. And I'm laughing. And two, I swear, two minutes later, the phone rings again. And it's Andre again. And he goes, hey, so I've been thinking what you've been talking about with Marat. You can't take that job. That guy is a runaway train. He's a loose cannon. And you don't want your wife around that guy. He said this. And I started laughing. So so I'm not hanging up the phone until you give me the yes that you're going to take this job. I said, all right, I take the job. And I hung up the phone. So that's how I got the job with Agassi. With him for the next five years. I could go on and on about the story, but to cut the long story short, we get across to San Francisco. The whole time, my wife is going, killer, this is a mess. What are you going to be able to teach him? This guy's already a legend. Uh, you know, this could be in Russia right now. Here we are going to San Francisco. We walk into Andre's house. She's nervous. I'm nervous. It's 29 Grand Slam trophies sitting in this house, 22 from Steph and 7 from Andre. Yeah. Walk in the house, Steph's as nice as you can be, Andre's as nice as you can be, he picks us up from the airport, she's a bit nervous. We walk into the house, they take us to where we're actually staying, staying and sleeping, and we've got this massive big room, it's a place in Tiburon, I think it's worth about $22, 23000000 million, yep. 
one view over the Golden Gate Bridge, one view over the Bay Bridge, looking over the water. Gorgeous. Victoria looks around to me and she goes, All right. Killer, good call. <laughs> Don't fuck this up. Her words exactly. And I would just... That made me more nervous now because now, now I had to make sure it worked. And yeah. you couldn't fuck it up. Exactly. So oh. th- that's the story of how I got the job with Agassi. How, how, how great was that five years? Because, you know, you had that... It was very different with Leighton because you're sort of, you know, moulding a young man. And yeah. then you go to someone like Andre who, as Vic says, is yeah. a legend. Um, and who, ha- who I know quite well as well. is quite opinionated and, yeah. how, and how he <laughs> sees things and how he views things. But he's also very uh, malleable in listening to yeah. your point of view. How um, life-changing was that experience with him? Because he's quite a philosopher. Oh, yeah. You know? He's deep. Yeah. And... I think the reason why it worked quite well was because Australians in general are quite black and white yeah. and we can simplify really quickly. Mm. Andre is incredibly bright and yeah. very deep and he can make the easy really difficult sometimes. Mm. You can give him a complex problem and he'll break it down and you'll go, oh God, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. But sometimes if things are a bit simple for him, he can make it much more difficult than it needs to be. So I think the his personality and my personality seemed to gel quite well with that. I could simplify a little bit what he was trying to accomplish and work on in the tennis court, break down opponents' strengths and weaknesses, work out through his eyes what would be more valuable for him to do more often. And also, we talk quite a bit about coaching, is that you don't always have to bring your A game. The most important thing in tennis is to find a way to win, especially when you're not playing well. And Andre didn't like that. He quite often would let matches go if he wasn't playing close Perfect. to his best yeah. because he got so upset with himself. Yeah. And it's so important that you don't get to number one in the world and you don't win majors unless you just survive. Yeah. And then you continue to work on your game throughout the course of the tournament. You don't always have to be playing your best tennis. So some of his best wins in those last couple of years when he'd walk off the court, he'd hit six winners and six unforced errors, or walk off the court and think, oh, I don't think I played that well today. Yeah. And you beat Richard Gasquet two and two. Yeah. You know, that was some of his best wins because it was finding a way to win that he wasn't used to. How hard was it to see him at the end struggle physically? Yeah, that was that was a tough finish. And, knowing how, and, and just quickly, knowing how much he loved playing. Yeah, Yeah, which you know, goes against his book a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. As well, well, I think loving the... Um, the competitive sort of part of the game was what drew him in the end to mm-hmm. loving the sport was that he actually really he loved it you know we found a reason to play yeah. as well and that was through education mm-hmm. and providing education for yeah. the underprivileged back in Vegas building the school and that gave him a real impetus to get out there and, and make it happen not so much for himself but a real reason to to keep winning and keep playing the last 12 months were difficult but not as difficult as what people think because, firstly, he was a pleasure to be around yeah. also for me. We had very honest conversations throughout the course of that period about continuing to try. Mm. Remember, in 2000, he finished in 2006. In 2005, he had one of his best years mm. and he made it through to the US Open final yeah. at 35 years of age, winning. Lost to Roger, no? Lost to Roger. Yeah. Uh, he had a settle. I remember this like it was yesterday. Settle, really windy day, 4-2 in the third set. 30 love on serve with the breeze mm. and we were thinking uh oh you know and Roger didn't like playing him back in those days so yeah. there was a good chance he was going to win that yeah. match Roger hit a little lucky return at 30 love that landed on the line played a good point 30 all Andre got a little bit tight 30 40 Roger breaks bang it, the the match just changed on a dime but before that match he won three matches the I think it was fourth round, quarters and semis, all in five sets to get through to the final at 35 years of age, which is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. What was the thing that 
if you had to sum him up in one word, mm-hmm. maybe two, because you you know you're as verbose as me, um, what would it be? He loved watching opponents suffer. Hmm. It's a little bit like Rafa, but Rafa does it differently because he's so athletic on the court. Andre would plant himself on the baseline and take time away from players, and they would feel like they played three sets against Andre when they've only played one set because you just couldn't breathe when he was playing his... I played him. I I was on the back end of a two-and-two beating when I thought I was playing really well, and you can't breathe because there's nowhere to go. You can't serve volley. You can't stay back. You can't bring him in because he's hitting the ball too hard. He just runs you from side to side. He got enjoyment out of watching players suffer, and he would actually, believe it or not, could thump someone easily if he wanted to, but he would extend matches (laughs) just to make the opponent suffer a little bit more, to send them a message, next time you play me, it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so that brings me to, okay, so the Andre coaching situation finishes. You, you take up a bit of a consulting role, I believe, at, yep. at, at Adidas at that period mm-hmm. of time. So is that how the connection came with Simona? And, yep. and what's the difference... What was your thought process in going into the female coaching? Because it's, I would consider, very different. Why? You answer that question. Why is it different? Well, because um, I would say that, well, I, I guess in some respects, being with Andre, being so philosophical and sort of thinking and being yeah. a little bit more tough on himself, it was probably not a bad transition yeah. to go to working with females who I feel think a lot too, almost too much about why they're not winning yeah. or what's the outcome and they worry too much about the outcome. Guys yeah. are a little bit less about the outcome and more about just you know point by point and they don't get so worried about the emotional yeah. side of it whereas Andre probably did so yeah. it probably wasn't that big of a transition for you. No, it wasn't. All right, it, you, you explain it. No, it, you're right. But I think the mental game is a little bit different. Yeah. The tennis itself is not that different at all. It's the same lines, the same problems, the same trying to find ways to finish points. You know, it's the same principles as the men's game compared to the women's game, but the mental game is a little bit different. I think simply because a male player with a big serve gets up a set and a break, you can coast to the finish line. You have a strength that you can win free points, you can relax a little bit, and you can find your way to the finish line fairly comfortably. Not all the time, but fairly comfortably. The women can't, unless you're Serena, because you don't have a big weapon that can get you there. So you have to continue to execute the game plan, stay on course, deal with the nerves, uh, have the ability to continue to be brave. You know, there's a lot of variables so that come into it. So that's emotionally taxing. Exactly. You're constantly exactly. having to check. Yeah. So check your brain. That's right. Check your yeah. heart. 
you know, not get too far ahead, not get too far behind. And so that's, I I don't think people are like staying in the now, literally so difficult. And you can, you can disappear from the now with the men as well. You know, when Federer gets up a set and a break, the return games, he can disappear. He can be relaxed and give it away. And then he just switches it on for the Roddick. Yeah. I can go through all the men basically. It's the same principle. So they can cut themselves away from the mental breaks. The women cannot. So a lot of the women get a hard time for being perceived to be mentally weak. It's just not the case. Mm. And there are so many more variables that come into play. I had a little bit of a trial run because with Adidas, I got to work with a bunch of the female players on a consulting role. And some of them actually more full-time. The the year that I was with Simona for the last nine months, I was helping Simona and Angie Kerber were mm. my two players. A little more with Simona because of the fact that Angie was working with Torben. So yeah. I was consulting to the team and Simona didn't really have a coach, so I was assuming that full-time coaching role. We got to the US Open, Adidas discontinued the job, mm-hmm. and then we got to the US Open, and Simona sat me down and asked me whether or not I would like to consider working with her full-time the next year. And you had to juggle then, because, you know, cut to a little bit, um, your ESPN role. Because mm-hmm. you're now working full-time for ESPN yep. at the Grand Slams, etc., and different weeks on the road, and you had to juggle that as well with her, and yep. how was she with that? And you still are with ESPN, as am I. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not easy, because... You know, you don't want to be seen as favoring one player, but obviously yeah. it's, you know, everybody knows you're coaching somebody, so obviously yeah. you're going to favor them. But you also want to be respected in the fact that you yeah. actually love the competition of everybody. Yeah. You don't want to see anyone do poorly. Correct. Yeah. But it, it was a tough juggle for you. Yeah, it was. I think more so for Simona at, at first. I'm not the perfect coach for her because yeah. the biggest tournaments in the world are the Grand Slams. And so... You want somebody, ideally, to be there fully invested 24/7. In 24-7 for that player. And with my role with ESPN, you're not during the Grand Slams. Yeah. Even though I think sometimes coaches can smother the players and a yeah. little bit of a break is not a bad thing as well. Yeah. It's not perfect. So I was upfront and honest and she knew exactly what my role was at ESPN. And so it was her decision. I said, this is my role. Yeah. I'm not perfect. I would love to do it if you want me to do it, but it comes with a, a few handbrakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is completely up to you. If you don't want me to do this, we can work together to help you get the right person. And she said, no, absolutely not. I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't a youngster. She was yeah. 27 now, so maybe 24. Mm-hmm. And she was already a great player, so she knew the deal. And she has a really good team around her anyway. Teo Cicel has been a strength and conditioning trainer for the last 10 years, and he's been the rock yeah. and the unsung hero behind her. So... It was her decision, yeah. and it's always been her decision, and she could have gotten rid of me at any time. So she, uh, and she actually asked me, what would you do with Andre? How would you get that deal done? And I said, actually, we went to a, uh, we did a six-week trial, and then we went and bought some takeaway for our wives. And on the way down there, he, he said, all right, this is how much I would like to pay you. I'd like you to be my full-time coach. And I said, okay. And he goes, do you need a contract? I said, not if you do. And he goes, all right, we shake on it. And <laughs> we shook hands and that was it. Yeah. So I told Simona the story and she said, I want the same deal. <laughs> I said, oh, all right, how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> exactly. So uh, it took about 30 seconds. We shook hands and we haven't spoken about it since. That's it. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's three years ago. So look, everybody knows you had that period of time where you had a break, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, Simona's Simona, right? I mean, she's Romanian and they're fiery and they're fun to watch, but they're difficult to work with sometimes because they get so pissed off at themselves. Yeah. Um, you have that break and you come back to working with her. What was the difference, the biggest difference um, from that period of time 
Because it was a, it was an important one for her. Yeah, it was after Miami. Yeah, playing Pachinski and. It wasn't just from that match. Yeah. And there were a bunch of matches that were slipping away from her. And we were speaking through the mental game quite a lot and what's expected of her and, and what she needs to do to improve that side of a tennis, to, to get to the top, to win majors. Because you can't have mental lapses and expect everything to go right throughout the course of a Grand Slam or the course of a year because it just won't. There are so many things you can't control. You have to control what you can control. That's the most that's the most important thing in tennis. So she'd lost a bunch of matches where it was slipping away from her in the same way and I was trying and trying to get through her and the but words she wasn't the word the words the weren't getting through. So you as a coach you have to be prepared to try something different, walk away, a little bit of a shock tactic. It, it had to be up to her. She had to buy into it. She had to accept that she had to get better. There were certain things that we'd put in place that she wasn't following through with. So either she did that with me or she found somebody else to do that with. And, and so we took a bit of a break for about four weeks. Uh, she went away and thought about things, uh, tried to improve on what she was doing on the court, uh, would call me up after a match to see if I was watching, to see if she was better. She certainly was. And then just before Madrid started, she asked me if I'd come, come back. back. And I said, yeah, I've seen enough to believe that you not perfect, but you're buying into it and you're trying and that's good enough for me, so away we go. What did she learn from the loss in Paris when she was up a set in three? Yeah, love? that's two break... Uh, sorry, uh, three love, three break points for four love. I, I'm not sure you can really learn anything from that apart from... Really? Yeah, because it was such a kick I remember the specifically one game, the three love game when she threw a racket. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I remember thinking to myself watching that I was watching it at home. The crowd went against her. And I, it wasn't even that. I just, my first initial thought when she threw a racket was, what the F are you doing? Yeah. You've just given her one slight crack of the window yeah. to actually believe there's a chance, chance, mm-hmm. that she could win that match. That was the, if there was one moment, I, I mean, we all have moments in our careers mm-hmm. where we look back, I mean, mine wasn't the enormity of that, but I actually had the biggest moment of my career yep. where I learned my biggest lesson on that same court yep. where I got so angry that I missed a, a really easy overhead and I literally was trying to tube my opponent yep. in the semi-finals of the French Open doubles and I lost the point I was on set point and we lost the set and we were up a break and we ended up losing the match and I remember thinking to myself I can never get to the point of being that angry that all I want to do is actually to make a point rather than win the point yeah and, That's well said. And then I literally, we won Wimbledon three weeks later. Yeah. And it taught me the biggest lesson. And it was the hardest thing because I never won the French Open. Yeah. It was the only Grand Slam I never won. So I, I, that, that moment for me was massively pivotal in that match. And we did talk about that. Yeah. That was a, a moment we spoke about. There were other little ones as well. We did speak about that one because the crowd actually turned against her mm-hmm. before that because she's up a set and a break and mm-hmm. the crowd, very that. smart uh, tennis crowd, crowd is the French Open crowd. And so they basically thought what you thought. Why would she do that? And I think it was 15 all, so it was for... It was 15 Yeah, 30-15. Yeah. But then she won the next point. She won the next point for break point and had three more, two more after that. She was devastated after that match and that loss stayed with her for a long time she had a couple of chances for number one after that loss she lost to Conta in the quarters of Wimbledon she lost to Muguruza uh, also in the final of Cincinnati got thumped by Gabinia that match was for number one also not just the Grand Slam title but that match stayed with her for a long long time and I don't think until she played Beijing where she made it through to the final finally became number one was she able to push that match away from her a little bit and that was important for her to have that win that win over Sharapova 
in Beijing early after losing to her at the US Open in the first round. Great match, but again, just played waiting for her opponent to lose instead of taking it to her opponent. That one taught her a lot of lessons. I think more than anything, that loss she took against Sharapova at the US Open last year taught her more about a game than any loss she's had. Mm, why? Because she played well and she lost. Yeah. And and normally when she plays well, she wins. Yeah. And so she was asking herself a bunch of questions. What do like, I why, need to do? Why did I lose this match? Where do I need to improve? Because this, I don't even understand this. And, and where was it? First round of the French Open. Uh, no, first no, round no. of the US Open. No, no, what was it that she needed to work on that you felt? Yeah, her court positioning, her ability to step up when her opponent hits a short ball and take a little more risk. Her serving patterns were way too predictable. Um, There was about six or seven things that we sat down after that particular match that she wasn't... She knew, we'd spoken about them, but she wasn't buying into. And straight after that loss, she didn't have a break. She went back to Bucharest. She started training on the very things that we were working on. And then lo and behold, she has an unbelievable week in Beijing. Yeah, that's so cool. I think that's what people don't realise is that players, to really get better yeah. uh, to really get to that next level everybody has to reassess yeah. right and that was a great reassess moment yeah. it's interesting how you can lose and how it can be the biggest difference in mm-hmm. winning future matches okay so we cut to the Aussie Open um, you know some of the most phenomenal matches that I've ever witnessed at the Australian Open and I don't know what it is about Simona but my god <laughs> she likes if to make I, me if suffer. I can please put my hand up to commentate any matches it is Simona's because they're so fun to watch yeah. But that match um, in the semis against Kerber is one of the great matches I've ever seen. Lauren Davis also. Lauren Davis yeah. over four hours. Um, and the final, uh, uh, you know, uh, was also... Um, you know, besides the... I don't really want to get into the minutiae of, like, winning and losing and those grand slams, but how frigging stressful is it? Because I know now. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on the... I mean, you played, I yeah. played. We've been through big matches. How... Just explain to people at home how stressful it is to be a coach because it's so stressful because you have so much onus on what you're telling them yeah. and they look to you with the you know those eyes and before matches and after matches and it's so stressful well, you're not as old as me so you're going to learn to disconnect a little bit from the stress of every point because when you first start coaching you ride every point like it the whole match is riding on it so you know, I look pretty. I'm pretty. Well. Yeah, I'm okay. Not too bad. Yeah. I'm not too bad. But, but yeah, it's... I had I had Mark Williams. Mark Williams is a, another Australian I grew up with, who was the former coach of great Collingwood footballer, former coach of Port Adelaide, coach in Victoria. And he's sort of been my mentor throughout my career. And he sat behind me through the course of the Australian Open. And he's a pretty cool, calm, collected, collected guy. He's been there at the top level of the game as a coach and a player. He was stressed to his eyeball. Just what he, he looked at me quite often and he was like, How do you do this? <laughs> like yeah. it's and it's what people that sit in our box that come and they're visitors to our box yeah. sick because she's so connected to the box yeah. are stressed to the max. Yeah. And she makes us a little bit stressed as well because yeah. of her personality. But you gotta love it. It's because she's so invested, she wants to win so badly, she wants to please yeah. everybody in the yeah. box and do the right thing by them. And she gives everything she has. So you can't I got it. Not I, love that. I got it interesting. Uh, Kamal Murray actually said, uh, just for your, uh, I don't know if he's told you this, but he said uh, in the finals of Canada this last past year in uh, Montreal, I think it was, and one of the best matches I've yeah, actually, maybe the best match I've seen all year, yeah. actually, between Sloan and uh, Simona. He said to um, OG, who's sitting next to him, who's you know, with Sloan's yeah. crew, he looked at her, I think it was two all in the third, yeah. and he said, man. I don't care what happens here. You've got to love this. Because it was that good. I mean, yeah. even for a coach who's sitting yeah. there stressed out, 
you're just like, man, yeah. you've got to actually love this. Yeah. And then there are moments where you're like, shit, I feel so privileged. I mean, me yeah. doing courtside too as well for ESPN. Yeah. And I'm like, God, I'm so lucky to do this job and watch these, these kids and these girls go out there and just give it everything they've got, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one thing that we have to appreciate a little bit more about what they do. You told me also after she won in Paris, you, you should see the crowd, Stubbsy. Yeah. Like the pressure on her at home with, she's such a superstar. Yeah. But yet, I have to tell you, um, we took a flight this year because she I hitched a ride with her on the private plane from <laughs> Montreal to Cincinnati. Thank you for that, Simo. Um, but she's such a humble person. Yeah. Like she's actually such a sweet person. Yeah. Like we try and jab her a little bit with our, you know, coarseness and our typical Australian stuff and she kind of it goes over her head sometimes and she's just nah, she's, she doesn't go over her head yeah sometimes she, she like you said to her why are we giving Stubbsy a ride to Cincinnati and you were trying to get one certain question yeah. out of her and she said because she's nice she I just want people to know at home how actually how sweet she is yeah. as a human being she's actually a really good person yeah it is tough to describe the pressure that she's been under the last four or five years mm-hmm. and expectation. Ion Tiriak, who everybody knows, mm-hmm. he owns Madrid and he's been around for forever and, and he's sort of like the godfather of Romania. And he pulled me aside a few times and basically said, listen, she needs to win a major <laughs> because the country needs it. Mm-hmm. We need this. You know, Romania has had a tough 30 or so years and the culture of Romanians is a little bit of a negative one. Mm. And her doing what she's doing and winning a major because we don't have a great football team and she's the biggest superstar in sport that we have, if she wins a major, it changes everything Mm. in Romania. So when someone like that pulls you aside and puts a little bit of extra pressure on you to make it happen, you feel it. So if I was feeling it, she was feeling it times 100. Mm. And she can't go anywhere in Romania, obviously. She is the biggest athlete there and... Dealing what she's had to deal with the last three years that I've been with her and the way she's done it, I have nothing but respect for her because it hasn't been easy for her. Mm. And she deserves everything that she's earned. Great respect from the fans that she have in Romania. 99% of the fans in Romania are fully behind her and they give her enormous support. She has a little bit of a tough time with the media sometimes that anything she says that ends up on the front page of a paper on a, on a negative angle. Mm. But by and large, I think, she deserves and has earned to be well respected and uh, she's done a great job yeah you said that um, her winning the French was the best day yeah. of your yeah. career yeah no uh, because of the journey yeah because sometimes I think I used a quote about sometimes the most beautiful destinations are the bumpiest roads mm-hmm. and we personally had a bit of a bumpy road yeah. getting there as well and I'd been I had a front row seat to watching her on that bumpy road get there so for me it was a, a proud moment to see her finally do it and knowing what it meant to her and also the people back in Romania I want to um, you know we're getting to the end of this but um, you told me a really fun story <laughs> aside from the coaching and your playing days is that you know you've become one of the best commentators and uh, analysts in, in the sport of tennis you really are um, you told me a great story about Dick Emberg mm, yeah you want to tell us that one yeah I was Dick's a legend of commentating in the US and he'd worked for all the big networks for American football and for tennis and he was legendary for ESPN doing Wimbledon and one of my first years of working Wimbledon they actually rostered me with Dick on center court at Wimbledon and I I was huge for me and I was so nervous I think it was Federer playing as well so I've got Dick Einberg legend of broadcasting Federer playing and then doing it on center court and I'm about to and I didn't have a great deal of experience and I'm about to walk into the booth 
And Dick's got all these papers lined out across his desk and he's got the highlighter out and he's got things circled. He's got all this work done, the homework. Oh, my God. It was, And I walk in there and I have nothing. <laughs> I have one sheet of paper basically with a few hit points and a couple of little notes that I've jotted down. I only care about head-to-head. That's all I care about. Yeah, and I put this little piece of paper down and I went, oh, Dick, I feel so embarrassed. You know, I'm so sorry, you know. And I knew Dick. Dick was always nice to me, but yeah. we'd never actually worked together. I'm so so sorry that I look at all the work you've done. You've done all this homework, and I've I've got this one piece of paper. And he goes, "Son, sit down." And so I sit down, and he goes, "I would be really worried if you walked in with all these pieces of paper because you're the expert. I'm not, and you're the one that's supposed to tell me what I don't see. You're the one that's supposed to break this match down and give the viewer what they are not seeing. So if you walk in here with all these papers." you might as well take those papers and get the hell out of here. I went, oh, thanks. <laughs> and then away we went. And I got to, call, uh, got to call a match with Dick Enberg, and it went really well, and he couldn't have been nice more enough. friendly to work with and inclusive because, as you know, sometimes uh, working with a legend can not be easy sometimes, but he was so inclusive and brought me into everything that he made my job a lot easier. Okay, so... Um... Last couple of things. Your kids are playing tennis. You out there with your son playing a lot of tennis yeah. these days. And yeah. how, how, how tough is it for the kids, like your family, to, to have to sort of, I don't know, live up to your name? Because, you know, your dad was very famous playing football. You're very famous in tennis. How yeah. difficult is it for your kids? Maybe. Oh, well, if you ask my son, it's not that difficult because he's, <laughs> he's pretty super relaxed about the whole thing. He just goes about his business and I try to tell him a couple of things. He'd go, ah, what would you know? <laughs> so it's Really? Yeah, he's, he's a little more... Uh, is he smart? Is he got yeah, more yeah, sort yeah. of tennis brain? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, I, he's, he's an old school serve volleyer, so yeah. he likes to come forward. And he's 17. He would love to go off to US college and, and do four years over there. He does a lot better in school than I used to do, so he's going to fit in there nicely. But I, the way the tennis is these days is that it's much more of an older sport, yeah. I think, both on the men's yeah, side and the women's side. Yeah, so I think having options like US going over there between the ages of 18 to 21, 22 is a great option for mm. players now and they do a wonderful job over there and he's kind of a US kid anyway because of the job with Andre he basically was over there from one until about 15 years of age so the kids came back to Australia with US accents. Talia's... Oh God, hilarious. Yeah, Talia, well, my daughter. time in Vegas. Exactly. Yeah. And she's 14. Uh, she's Simona's biggest fan. Yeah. Uh, she loves it. So... Um, the, the kids, they love tennis, they embrace it, uh, but they're back into the Australian way of life now. They do a lot of the Aussie sports. Tali is a netball back there, and Victoria's getting more involved in netball as well. So can't beat the Aussie life. It's uh, no. great people, great education, uh, great way of life back in Australia. So it, it'll be interesting with us once the kids want to go back to the States and go back to college. Uh, we might find ourselves back there, I think. Mm, really? Yeah. Oh, it's all a... The world is your oyster. Correct. It's kind of a nice... That's the one thing about tennis is that, you know, it takes you around the world. You meet so yeah. many great people. All right, last uh, question. What's the funniest story that you think from your playing days, <clears throat> whether it be coaching, playing, that you can remember, that you can finish on? It's going to take a couple of minutes. That's fine. Um, it's a bit embarrassing for me. That's perfect. All right. That's awesome. That's my, why we're here on the My By far, podcast. the most embarrassing and funniest story comes from the German Open. I won a match against Ronald Agenor in the first round, and I was due to play Lendl in the second round. And clay was not my best surface, so I hurt myself in the groin a little bit on my match against Agenor, and I went into the training room. And Bill Norris, who was a trainer in there, and I walked over to Bill and said, Bill, I've got a bit of a problem. I've tweaked my groin a little bit. And he goes, go over to her and she'll look after you. 
And I, I said, yeah, and I said, Billy, it's a, it's a lady. It's, it's a great, killer. I'm busy. You can see there's players everywhere, trainers looking at it. She was the only one free. And I, she's fine. Everyone's a pro here, killer. Stop wasting my time. Get over there and tell it. So I get over there and I start. And he, he also said, listen, her English is not great. So talk slowly. So I get over there. You know what it's like when someone doesn't speak great English. My English goes to hell too. So you start to say something like, uh, so slide and uh, uh, groin. Uh. You don't. You start yeah, speaking yeah. pigeon English yeah, when yeah. you just, if you speak normally, they have a much better chance of understanding you. And she's like, oh, okay, okay. Speaking the English is not so good. You know, mm-hmm. it was a, a table and just point. So I point to it. I take my towel off. I got a box of shorts on. And now she starts to work her way up the leg a little bit. And now these problems, as every boy who's about 18, 19 years of age, starts oh to gosh. worry about. And I'm going, oh, my God. And think ugly. Just think as ugly as you can possibly think. It didn't work. And the little guy starts to poke his head up a little bit and have a bit of a look around. And, and I've got a towel over it and whatnot. But now I'm burying my head in the pillow just going, don't do this, don't do this. She was a total pro. She just kept pushing kept into the she area, kept, kept pushing into the area. I was in pain, but it didn't matter. The little guy still having a look around, seeing what's going on through the towel. Anyway, I come up after she's finished. It was about 15 minutes. It felt like an hour. It was like 15 you're minutes. Sweating, sweating. So I'm sweating telling the story because I'm, I live the story every day in my mind. I, I come up and Bill Norris is laughing his head off. So everyone obviously saw what was going on. Everyone's looking. I get up. I look at the lady. Hilda, I think her name was. Hilda. I, yeah, I, I said, Hilda, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry if that was uncomfortable. In perfect English, she says, ah. Don't worry, it wasn't big enough to get in the way. That was the most embarrassing tennis story I've got for you. I'm sorry that it embarrassed, but oh my God. verbatim, locker room just cracked up. I walked out, jumped in the shower, got my bag, went home, went home, and didn't come out of my hotel room for like two days. Oh and, and ended up losing the Lendl like two and love the next day because I couldn't play. Killer. That, I'm shaking your hand on that one. <laughs> that is a ripper. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Stephanie. Only an Aussie would tell that story with pride, <laughs> even with a sweat. Hey, listen, just to finish on, well done, Simona, world number one again this year. Thank you. Two years in a row. Yeah. You've done an amazing job with an amazing person. Yeah, she's a rock star. Um, so thanks for joining me here in Singapore. You're, are you going home tonight? Going home. Well done with your show as well. I hear you're doing great no, things thanks. with it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I've got, got to put another hat on later on today. But um, Good luck. Yeah, thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri, Taylor Dalton, and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 